We're going to look today at the uh, the first 17 verses uh, of Matthew 4. And we've just come off uh, in Matthew chapter 3 uh, of, of the baptism uh, of Jesus. And now we're going to see the temptation of Christ uh, and kind of the beginnings of uh, Jesus' ministry. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We'll pause there for just a moment. So, Thus far in, in Matthew, in, in, in chapter 1, we, we learn of, of Jesus' lineage, his connection to Abraham. So he's attested to uh, by Abraham. And then in chapter 2, we see uh, that Jesus is attested to by the prophets. Uh, we see that a little bit here in chapter 4 as well. But then in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is attested to by the Father, the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And so we have these kind of three attestations of Jesus Right from from his family lineage with Abraham, uh, from the prophets, uh, and from God Himself uh, attesting to Jesus being the Son of God, and then immediately upon uh, this attestation from the Father in, in the baptism of Christ, it says that that He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now think about this for a second. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Well, what does that do to some of your theology? <laughs> That's Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then we're told 40 days went by and shouldn't be any shocker, but Jesus was hungry, right, after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. And so um, there were some questions. Uh, or Dave uh, emailed me some questions uh, just knowing that I was working on this passage uh, that I think I'm going to attempt to answer today in this section. And, and the questions that came in were, why would God allow Satan to put Jesus through these trials, what outcome from these tests was God looking for and what was the point that God wanted to make in these occurrences? Great questions, by the way. And so we're going to attempt uh, in these uh, few verses to answer some of those questions. And so so Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So there was God had a purpose in this, and hopefully we're going to see today um, what God's purpose was uh, in this happening. And so in verse 3, uh, we're told that the tempter first came to Jesus, saying, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So the devil taking advantage of Jesus being hungry, right, after uh, not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, you can go a long time without food before your body starts to break down. You can't go long without water, right? You can only go a few days without water before it becomes a pretty bad situation. But you go a ways without food before it becomes super detrimental. But Jesus had gone 40 days, and so the, the devil comes in basically uh, calling upon Jesus' power, saying, if you want to, you can turn these stones to bread at any time you want, and you can get some relief. 
right? And you can eat. I, I can go four hours, let alone 40 days. I can't even, like, I can't even wrap my mind around maybe even a day without food. I don't know that I've ever done that. Um, I know people that have done long stretches of fasting, uh, and Jesus has 40 days. And we're told that he was hungry. We, we see some of the humanity of Christ here, just in the fact that he was hungry, right? The devil's not wrong. He could have at any moment turned anything into food and got some relief. But but we see the humanity of Christ here. And Jesus' response to the devil was, with Scripture, it is written that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, we need food for our sustenance, right? We, we can't go an indefinite period of time without food before it becomes critical. As critical as it is that we eat every day, as critical as it is that we eat the right things even, right, that we that we have a good nutrition and, and those kinds of things for our overall health, there's something that's more important according to Jesus here, and it's that every word that comes out of the mouth of God. As much as we need food for our survival and our sustenance, we need God's word more for our spiritual survival and our spiritual sustenance. And we're told in verse 5 that the devil took him up to the holy city and set, up, set him on a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written when he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So anyway, the devil is tempting him to go ahead and throw yourself off of this high point, and, and God's angels will take care of you. Again, not wrong. Not wrong in this. But Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Right? There, there's one place in the Bible where it says that we can test God, and it's not this. Right? We, we, you can't outgive God. You can test God in his generosity, we're told, and, and that, that's okay. But Jesus reminds the devil, don't, don't put God to the test. Like this, there's no point to this exercise. It's a silly exercise that would simply just take place in order to test God, and, and we're not going to do that. And then in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And this is perhaps the most audacious statement, maybe in all of Scripture, but certainly the most audacious of these temptations. The devil says to him in verse 9, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. As if the devil owns them. right? As if he owns the world. As if it belongs to him. As if he has the power and the authority even to do this. right? He says, I'll give you all of this if... And again, he's speaking to Jesus, right? He's speaking to the Son of God. The one who was just attested to by the Father as being the Son in whom the Father was well pleased. This is who he's speaking to. If you fall down and worship me, I'll give you everything. <laughs> it's, it's a laughable statement. And in verse 10, we kind of get that vibe from Jesus. Jesus says to him, just be gone, Satan. Right? He doesn't question him. He just says, be gone. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The, the devil knows this, right? Satan, he's, he's a crafty dude. He knows this, right? We're, we're told that the demons know who Jesus is. They, they know his power. They know his authority. They shudder at his name, right? And so this, this is a bold move by Satan trying to, trying to capture a weak point uh, in Jesus after he's fasted for 40 days and Jesus has had enough and he just simply says, be gone. The devil was gone. And so coming back to these questions, why, the why questions, why, why did this need to happen? 
Why would God allow Satan to put Jesus through these kinds of trials? And I think Scripture will inform us here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says that because he himself, speaking of Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 4, verse 15, saying, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Why why did Jesus allow this to happen? Or why why did the Father allow this to happen to the Son? So that we could have a high priest who is sympathetic to us. Jesus, unlike us, is perfect. Jesus, unlike us, didn't give in to temptation. Jesus, unlike us, passed his trials, passed his tests, right? He, he did what we're not capable of doing. And that means that, that we can go to him in our trials and in our temptations, even in our suffering, we can go to Christ. And we can simply just say, help. And he knows exactly what that means in that moment. We, we don't have to unpack and in with big words and, and fancy prayers, we, we can just go to Christ and just simply say, help, I need help. And he knows because he's a sympathetic high priest, he's been tempted as we are. And unlike us, he's not succumbed to the temptation. What a cool thing that is. Have you ever, have you ever thought about just what that means, that, that Jesus understands? I think sometimes, sometimes we feel bad that we're tempted. And sometimes we feel even worse when we give in to our temptations because we know. I don't think it's that often. I don't know about you, but in my own life, it's not that often that I have to wrestle with a particular thing and wonder, is this sinful or not? I know, right? You probably do too, right? And we give in to our temptations and then we feel bad and we feel like, well, I can't go to God with this because I just blew it, right? We're told that because he suffered, because he's tempted, he's able to help us and he's able to sympathize in our weakness. Even though his weakness is not our weakness, he can sympathize with us because he's been there and he's been tempted. We're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's a few things that that we learn here. One of the things that that we don't learn here that I think is a common misconception is that God won't ever give us more than we can handle. Sometimes we interpret this, this scripture saying that. It doesn't say that. It says that no temptation has overtaken us that hasn't overtaken somebody else somewhere, right? That's not common. We're told that God is faithful and he won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. In other words, Paul is erasing the excuse that says God made me do it. He's erasing the excuse even that says the devil made me do it, right? That's maybe an even more convenient one, right? We don't have those excuses because he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what we're told here is that whatever it is that comes our way that tempts us, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for our giving in to temptation. We have a way out provided to us by God himself in his faithfulness to us. And so if we just stop there and just kind of take that verse on its, on its own, we might have reason to feel bad for when we blow it. But given everything else that we've already talked about, that we have a sympathetic high priest who knows what it is to be tempted 
who knows what it is to go through a trial, who knows what it is to be tested, who knows, can sympathize with our weakness and has been tempted like we are in every way, yet he's without sin. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He's our advocate with the Father. So when we deal with temptation and trials and when we blow it, even knowingly blow it, we have a sympathetic high priest who we can go to. What a cool thing that is. And so as we think, why did God allow Satan to put the son through these trials? Maybe we get a little clearer answer to that question. What is the outcome of these tests that God was looking for? I don't think God was sitting on his throne, biting his nails, thinking, how's this going to go? Right? Is he going to pass? No. That, that's, God knew. God knew what he was doing, and there was a plan unfolding, and there was never any question as to whether Jesus would pass these tests. So what was the outcome that, that God might have been looking for? Not, not looking in the sense wondering or anticipating, but looking for in that God knew what the outcome would be, that Jesus would pass the test and that we would have Jesus to look to in our own trials. And that really, at the end of the day, is, is the point, I think, that God wanted to make in these things happening. That, that we could look to our Savior and say, tempted like me, unlike me, perfect in the temptations and in the trials, but also sympathetic to my weakness. And I can go to him in my weakness, and I can ask for help in the times that I need help. What a cool thing that is. And in Matthew 4, verse 11 after Jesus said, be gone, we're told that the devil left him, right? So Jesus said, be gone, and the devil left. We're, we're not privy to any arguments that might have taken place or any pushback. Jesus said, go, and the devil simply went, right? So this guy that says, if you give me everything, or I'll give you everything if you worship me, Jesus just said, go away. And he said, okay, and he left, right? And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. And I don't know exactly what, what that looked like, but, but we just see God's care, Right for for Jesus in His humanity, and it makes me think of James chapter four verses seven and eight, where it says this: It says, "Submit yourself therefore to God; resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded." There's a principle here that James lays out for us that I think we see exemplified in Jesus' response to these temptations. The first and foremost, we submit ourselves to God. And what does that look like? We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Right? We submit ourselves to uh, fellowship in the local church, to one another. Right? The Bible tells us in Romans that, that we're members of one another, that we actually belong to each other. Right? So that's what it looks like to submit ourselves to God, to, to scripture, to fellowship, to accountability and authority in our lives. James goes on to say, resist the devil and he will flee. It's no mistake that Matthew wrote in here that after 40 days, something that we all know, that Jesus was hungry. Right? The temptation was real. It was a real and legitimate temptation. But Jesus shows us what it looks like to resist the devil. And ultimately, the devil fled from Jesus. Right As he resisted him, the devil fled. But we're also told to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And what does that look like to draw near to God? To rest in what we're told in Scripture. To believe what we're told in Scripture. To take it as truth. So much so that, that our life is, is staked upon the truth 
of God's word. And we see this exemplified in Christ. Then James goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, distance yourself from your sin. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He reminds us that, that we're simultaneously sinner and saint. Right? The pull of sin in our lives is real. Right? It, it, it's not nothing. It's not something that, that we can just pretend isn't there and not deal with. Sin has a has a pull in our lives, but but as saints, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, those who have been washed with the Holy Spirit, we have in us, given to us by God, the ability to resist the devil, the ability to draw near to him, so that in our moments of weakness, we can lean on him. And so again, we see this exemplified perfectly in Jesus in these 11 verses. So on the heels of baptism, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. He passed the tests. And then as we get into verse 12, um, immediately we see that Jesus begins his ministry. Starting in verse 12 of Matthew 4, it says, Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we kind of see these rapid-fire events in Jesus' life, baptized, tempted, passed the test, and into ministry. And so he had heard that John had been arrested, and so he went to Galilee, and this was again to fulfill a prophecy. So again, Matthew reminding us that Jesus is attested to by the prophets. And this happens to be the prophet Isaiah. So, so we've seen so far in these first few chapters of Matthew, in chapter 1, we see that, that Matthew calls on the prophecy of Isaiah. He calls on the prophecy of Micah in chapter 2 and Hosea and Jeremiah. And in chapter 4 here, he calls on the prophecy of Isaiah, reminding us that, that there's the, the divinity of Jesus, that, that he is who the prophets claimed he would be, right? And so, so we get this attestation here again. And what is it that was spoken by the prophets? That, that Jesus would go to Galilee, and Galilee, we're told in verse 16, is called, uh, it says that the people are dwelling in darkness. It says that those people are dwelling in the region and shadow of death. Now, I've lived in some crummy places, but I don't know that I've lived in somewhere that I would call the shadow of death. Like, what kind of place does this have to be that it's referred to as a shadow of death? This was not a great place. And again, like we talked about a couple of chapters back, Jesus could have landed anywhere. He could have, in a lot of ways, it would make sense in a practical level, like be in the population center, like go to Jerusalem, right, where all the activity and all the people are. But no, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, kind of an out-of-the-way place that the people didn't think real highly of. Right, and here's Jesus as an adult. Again, could go anywhere, could land anywhere, could base his ministry out of anywhere. And where does he go? He goes to a place referred to as the shadow of death. But the prophets told us long ago that the people dwelling there in darkness have seen a great light. So not only does this fulfill a prophecy that Jesus 
would go there. It tells us something about who Jesus is, and it tells us something about the ministry of Jesus. That he wouldn't just go to Jerusalem where maybe resources would be, where people would be, uh, an international, you know, routes, trade routes came through Jerusalem. It would make sense to go there. It would, it would be efficient to go to a place like that. But no, Jesus goes to this place called the shadow of death so that he could be a great light. We're told by the prophet Isaiah that on them, on the people that live in this place called the shadow of death, that a great light has dawned. And that just shows us something about God's heart for maybe the marginalized, the out-of-the-way places. Uh, shows us God's heart for the people that the world might not have a heart for. Right? God has a heart for everybody, and the ministry happens in cities too. I'm not, I'm not bagging on cities at all. Don't don't hear that. But the fact that Jesus could have landed anywhere, this just shows us something about who God is, that he would go to a dark place like this. And it makes me think of a missionary couple that I know uh, from Arizona named Kelly and Georgia. They're missionaries to Cambodia. Uh, in their retirement years, you know, they had careers and uh, retired and, and were living the life in Arizona. And um, just through a, a series of events, one day they just felt called to the mission field. And Kelly, the husband, asked, like, where, where, where's the darkest place? Where one of the darkest places in the world? Like, where's one of the hardest places to be a missionary? And, and through a series of events, he came to know about Cambodia. He said, okay, we're going to go there. And, and then he and his wife pulled up a map one day of Cambodia and said, where, where's the darkest place in Cambodia? And through some connections, some people told him, like, Here, here's a part of Cambodia that's just, like, there's hardly any Christians there at all. And he's like, that's where we're going to go. <laughs> right? And in their retirement years, went to one of the hardest places in one of the hardest places. And, and that's what they have decided to devote their retirement years to, so that they could help bring a great light to a dark, dark place. Just have mad respect for that, for people that would do that uh, at a time in their life where they've kind of earned to sit back in an easy chair, right? They've earned to kind of finish out, you know, their life because of their previous hard work. Uh, they've earned to have it easy in their retirement years. And, you know, they're living in villages and sleeping on dirt floors, uh, eating things that they would rather not eat, going places that are hard to go. So that a great light could dawn on one of the darkest places in the world. There's something based on what we just read about Jesus that seems right about that. Right? They probably have people in their lives, maybe even their own family, saying, you guys are nuts for doing what you're doing. But according to what we just read, that, that's not nuts at all. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And so Jesus goes to the dark place as the starting point for his ministry in verse 17, we're told from that time, from the time that he showed up in the dark place, that Jesus began to preach. And what is it that he preached? He preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can imagine, maybe not the most popular message, right? Change your ways. Don't do these things anymore. There's, there's a new, not a new, but you know, like God is the authority. Submit your life to him, right? Not, not a real popular message, is it? Probably wasn't then, certainly isn't now, in our individualistic society that, that says that, that my truth is my truth. Your truth is not necessarily my truth. My truth is not necessarily yours, right? So, so we've made truth to be the subjective thing. And Jesus, right out of the gate, 
preaches what we would consider to be objective truth, meaning it, like it doesn't change. And it applies to everywhere, everyone, all of the time, throughout time and history and every culture everywhere, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the reason that Jesus came and went to one of the hardest places of the hardest places to start preaching this message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a lot of messages that Jesus could have preached right out of the gate. Jesus could have right out of the gate, went to this dark place and preached, hey, God loves you. That's what I would do. Right? That, that might pique people's attention, something like that. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We've heard that before, that that might make sense. No, Jesus preaches repent, turn from your sin, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that there's going to come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it doesn't delineate those that do it willingly and those that do it unwillingly. It just says everybody's going to know who Jesus is. And so if that's true, it makes sense that he would start out his ministry with this message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. This makes me think of John's gospel. In his first chapter, John talks a lot about the light and the darkness. And in John 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we're told that in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. John says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Have you ever been in a complete dark room and maybe you turn on you know, a flashlight or your cell phone or you light a match? Like the light just penetrates the darkness, doesn't it? It penetrates. The darkness can't overcome the light. Have you ever been in a lighted area and, and seen darkness penetrate the light? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And that, that might just be by God's good design that, that we know that. The light shines in the darkness. John goes on in uh, chapter 1, verse 11, saying that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him because, or but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. John goes on to say later on in his gospel that, that we love the darkness. We're drawn to the darkness. Right? We're drawn to sin because sin is a real temptation for us. As I said before, it's not that often that I really have to wrestle with if something is sinful or not. Sometimes maybe, but most of the time not. It's because I love I love sin. So do you. Right? Is it weird to hear a pastor stand up here and say, I love sin? If we didn't love our sin, it wouldn't be a temptation. I hate broccoli. I am not tempted ever to eat broccoli, <laughs> Ever. It's one of the foulest things ever made. It is, it's not a temptation for me. If I go over to your house and you serve me broccoli, I can gladly say no. I don't have to think about it. But there are other things in my life, and I guess I am comparing broccoli to sin, that's, just to be clear, right? There are other things in my life, not, not so, it's not so easy. Right? It's not so easy to resist the temptation for certain things, and it's because we're drawn, drawn to our sin. We're drawn to the darkness. And God knows this about us. John knows this about us, reminding us that Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. And ultimately it's because we're drawn to the darkness. But we're told by John to all who did receive him, to all of those who have submitted their lives to Christ, to all those who have repented, 
because they know and believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to all those who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I, I didn't decide on my own, right? I didn't decide, I didn't come to this intellectual conclusion that, okay, nothing else makes sense but God, therefore, right, I follow that. That's not the way that salvation works. The way that the Bible tells us that it works right here is that to all who did receive him, that he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but simply by the will of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it's the God of this age who blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So, so we come into this world in blindness, spiritual blindness, and it's God who removes the blinders and allows us to see who he is, to allows, who allows us to see Christ and what he's done for us and how much he loves us. So it's it's all God's work, right, that we believe. John chapter 6, we're told that it's the, it's the work of God that we believe. Jesus in John 6 fed a large crowd with just a little bit of food, right, one of his miracles. And right on the heels of this miracle, this crowd was following Jesus, and they're saying to Jesus, show us a sign after he just did this miracle. He said, show us a sign, like they just they weren't even paying attention to what just happened. And, and Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, like, like, you want a sign? You want a miracle? Here's the sign. Here's the miracle that you believe. That's the work of God. The, the real miracle is not that I just fed a whole bunch of people with a little bit of food. The real miracle is that you believe. The real miracle is that the blinders have come off of your eyes. The real miracle is that you have repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the real miracle. That's the message that Jesus has started his ministry with. But it's important that we remember that, that we come to faith in Christ as, as an act of his will, not an act of our will, right? This is what the Bible teaches us. And so, so what do we take away from this? These kind of two different scenes in the life of Jesus. We, we see his humanity in, in that he was tempted, his humanity in that he was hungry. Right? We see God's favor upon Christ, that the, that the angels tended to him. We see that Jesus went to a dark place on the map and said, this is the place where I'm going to start preaching the message of repentance, the place that needs it the most. And he began to preach that message. And it's important for us, I think, as, as a takeaway that, that we're reminded like this, this is, this is why Jesus came. This is why God stepped into human flesh. Not so that he could come and point the finger and say, like, you all have, like, you done messed up. It's not that. That he would come to preach this message that there's time to repent. You can turn from your sin. You can turn from the darkness and, and turn towards the light. This is why Jesus came. Like I said, it would make sense for me to maybe start off with a little softer message and maybe win some people over before you get into the hard stuff. But no. Jesus just cuts to the heart of the matter with this call to repentance. And that's the call that we hear today, the call that I hope that we heed today, this call to repentance, this call to turn from our sin, to turn from the darkness and to turn towards the light, understanding that if we do that, it's God's work in us, not our work in us. And so I would end just simply by saying that if you're here today and if you have heeded that call to repentance, keep repenting, right? It's not a one-time thing. Right? We repent over and over like we're serial repenters as Christians because we're serial sinners, right? So, so keep repenting. 
understanding that, that this is God's work in us. If you're here today and, and you have not repented or recognized or repented of your sin, like what, what, what day is better than today to turn from the darkness to the light, right? If, if this is true, and if not, not in a questioning sense, but just logically, if this is true, then what? If it's true that Jesus was attested to from Abraham, if Jesus was attested to by the prophets, if Jesus was attested to by the Father himself as being the Son in whom he was well pleased, and if his message is repent from your sin, turn from the darkness to the light, then what? If all of that's true, what do you do with that? And so I would encourage you, ask you to, to consider what you do with this message of repentance if it's not a message that you've heard or heeded before. God stepped into human flesh so that we would hear this message of repentance and so that we would heed the message of repentance so that we would turn to him so that he could show us his grace, right? What we read earlier in our invocation was that he would spend all of eternity showing us, pouring out his riches in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace, we have been saved, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that he's done. And so I'd ask you to consider that today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful uh, for this morning, thankful um, that you love us, thankful that you uh, have done for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves. We're thankful that you stepped into human flesh, Thankful that you uh, have come to the darkness and the darkness has not overcome the light that you shine with the truth of the gospel. And so God, I would pray for us today that you would help us um, to understand just that we have a Savior who's not, not unsympathetic towards our weaknesses and our temptations and that we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. And that you would help us um, to undertake also the, the ministry of Jesus, that we would be ones who would proclaim the message of repentance uh, here corporately in our church and individually as we go out to our uh, corners of the world, that you would help us to proclaim this message uh, so that people uh, would come from the darkness and into the light. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.